Does the New Testament teach us how to interpret the Old Testament? I think an interesting answer that's been given to this question in the past was that from Augustine, who said, this is a paraphrase, said, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And what he was trying to say there was that there's a unified message between the two testaments. That is to say that the Bible is teaching one truth, one ultimate truth, one revelation from beginning to end. And so by the very nature of what the Bible is, the Old and the New Testament, there is a connection and a uh, unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which automatically means that when we start thinking about Old Testament passages, we have to at least grant, at least be willing to grant at the very outset, that we can and should look to the New Testament um, in a way that helps us understand the Old Testament better. Now, notice what Augustine is not saying in this argument, is that the New Testament modifies or changes or improves or corrects the Old Testament. I think that's a poor way to look at our Bibles, and unfortunately that's a very popular idea. Even though somebody may not phrase it that way, they would say that the Old Testament is the same concept of what we typically treat old as, and that is bad or outdated or irrelevant. And so the New Testament comes along and makes all of these improvements to what was bad and irrelevant and so on and so forth. That's kind of how the argument goes. In fact, I'm convinced that's one of the reasons why people are willing to publish New Testament-only Bibles, as if to say the new and improved is here and we don't need the old anymore. It reminds me, though, of um, a previous lifestyle that I had, and that's that was uh, doing drywall work. Uh, you thought I was going to say something else. Drywall work, uh, particularly finishing work. Finishing work for drywall is when you put all the tape in the mud um, after the drywall has already been hung on the walls and the ceilings. And so it's the job of a finisher to go in and tape and mud those seams to make a smooth transition uh, between each piece, normally four by eight sheets of drywall. And... Typically, when you do this in the timeline of a renovation or new construction work, is that the drywall goes in normally before the electricians come in and connect all of the switches and outlets and hang light fixtures and things like that. So in other words, you're working with natural light in whatever building you're in or whatever spotlights that you happen to bring with you and you're running extension cords to a power source. The reason you do that is because as good of a job as you think you're doing at taping and mudding where you're trying to feather out the mud and have no uh, nicks on the wall or bad spots or humps or bumps, anything like that, as good of a job as you think you're doing, you suddenly realize that there's a lot more going on when you plug in a light, turn it on, and shine it on your work surface. You suddenly realize you have a lot more to sand because it's not as smooth as it originally looked. Now this is kind of a, uh, a twist of an analogy because the point I'm making here is that the, what the light does in that setting is not improve the wall. 
The light doesn't change anything about the, about the wall. The light exposes what's there. In that case, normally, a job that doesn't look quite as good as you thought it did. Well, the New Testament does this, but the New Testament does it in a different way. Because what the New Testament does is it works as a light source shining upon the truth of the Old Testament. And it shows what's there. It shows what we couldn't originally see. It doesn't change what's there. It doesn't improve what's there. It actually shows the glory and goodness in its fullness, a way that was not beforehand seen. I think there's two passages that speak about this illumination that the New Testament uh, does in its dealings with the Old Testament. Two of them that I want to read to you, the first is Luke 24, 27, and this one will hopefully be a very familiar one to you because this is the the epic Bible study of all Bible studies. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has just been raised from the dead. But the disciples are bewildered. They don't know that he's been raised from the dead. They don't know what to make of the fact that he's just been crucified. So they're hopeless. They're walking along the road. Along comes Jesus, and they don't recognize him, And which is somewhat of an irony because he's about to teach them um, an, a hermeneutic interpretation lesson about the Old Testament in order to see him. And so there's a little bit of irony going on, the fact that that physically they don't recognize him. So there's a physical sight and a spiritual sight thing happening here. And it says, when he took them alongside him, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's our illumination. There's our shining the light on what was already there in the Old Testament, but seeing it in its fullness, doing what, again, what Augustine called the old in the new revealed. Another passage that's quite similar, playing along these these same lines, is from the Apostle Paul. He speaks of illumination in this way in 2 Corinthians. He says this, he says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians 3, 15 through 17. Now these two texts show us that the New Testament doesn't change the Old Testament. It doesn't improve the Old Testament. It illuminates the Old Testament. It reveals what was there. It reveals the Christ-centeredness. It reveals the unity, the once-for-all plan of God unfolding in the beginning of our Bible, in Genesis, all the way through. Now, this is where the criticism comes in, because what happens is, when we start saying things like this, we get accused of spiritualizing the text of the Old Testament and reading into it something that the original authors couldn't possibly have imagined as their meaning. And if we care about the meaning of the author, what's known as authorial intent, then we have to be very careful about spiritualizing things. And in fact, that's just the first step down a slippery slope of liberal theology because that's what liberal theologians do in liberal churches. They look at any kind of a miracle account or historical account in the Old Testament 
and they spiritualize it, but they do so in a way that takes an ethical lesson out of it and then destroys it of any historical relevancy. For example, the flood is not a historical event. There never was a flood. Noah is the story about being righteous in God's sight and receiving His grace. Or even this happens in the New Testament as well. Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead. It's just an inspiration. You know, those kind of things. And people that hear about spiritualizing a text, although I don't like that phrase, they'll say, well, that's what you're talking about. And it's just, you know, it's just a a short amount of time from you doing that to you giving up all the tenets of Christianity. And so I, I understand the respect for objective truth. I understand the respect for historical relevancy. I understand the respect for wanting to look at an author and ask the question, what did Isaiah mean when he wrote this? What did Moses mean when he wrote Genesis, for example? But what I'm arguing here is not that we have to, in any way, shape, or form, give up those things. But what we're arguing for is, again, that we are seeing God's progress of revelation, progressive revelation, progression through his story of redemption to us. For example, the first promise of the gospel is Genesis 3.15. Now, that happens in the midst of one of the darkest times, we could say the darkest time, of human history when God is pronouncing a curse upon the earth. He's judging Adam and Eve for their sin against him. And then regarding the woman and the serpent, God gives this promise that one will come from her offspring to crush the head of the serpent. Now at face value, there's not really a whole lot going on there. You could say, okay, there's a woman here, Eve, there's the serpent we just met in Genesis 3, and evidently a child is going to be born from her, and he's going to step on the head of the serpent. And that's kind of just the general outlook of that passage. But the thing is, God gives us more than that passage. We have every right to look at that passage and understand that there's way more going on, that namely it's talking about the promise of a Messiah, a reference point from that verse all the way through the rest of our Bibles with that dimmer switch of the light going in greater and greater intensity. And that one truth, that one message, is now being illuminated more and more and more, not changed, not modified, but the full reality of it is becoming more and more and more clear to us. We have an ability to see it in all of its truth, in all of its glory. That is the idea, and the Bible does this. We see this, for example, if you want to know places to really get a glimpse of this hermeneutic, this interpretation method of using the New Testament to understand the Old Testament, and vice versa for that matter. Look no further than the book of Acts. We're thinking oftentimes when we read things in the Gospels and we say, well, that was Jesus and his disciples and that has no relevance to the institutional church because that was a, you know, a very special time in the history of God's people, and we don't have Jesus on earth, we don't have the 12 disciples in the flesh anymore, and so 
you know, they were allowed to do things that we can't, and while that's true to an extent, we can look at the book of Acts and see as the church is formed in an institutional way and people are corporately gathering together as God's people, as Christ's sheep, then we can see how do they now, in this formal gathering of God's people, how do they interact with the Old Testament? And the answer to that is that they interact with it always. They don't say, now we're going to write new books, and now we're going to have new truth, and now we're going to modify everything that was ever spoken in the Old Testament. In fact, they do quite the opposite. Look at Peter's sermons. Look at the words of John. Look at the words of Stephen. All of these men in the book of Acts prove their points about who Jesus is by citing the Old Testament. They show that this truth of Christ in the New Testament is the same truth that was originally revealed in the Old Testament. How do the apostles make their arguments in the New Testament letters? They cite Old Testament passages. They are showing the unity of the two Testaments, and they're showing the full scope of what is meant in the Old Testament in the New Testament through who Jesus is and who we are as his redeemed people. And so my encouragement to you is that this would not be an either-or issue. This would not be an issue of how the Old Testament does things versus how the New Testament does things. And you either have to embrace what is said in the Old Testament and supposedly become Jewish, I guess, or embrace what's in the New Testament and have absolutely no ties to the Old Testament because that's all old hat anyways. Don't do that because that is so far off the radar from the Bible's message. Instead, you should see, as Augustine says, that this is one glorious truth revealed in part, in the Old Testament, and in its fullness in the New Testament. And the unity is so clear that there are no contradictions. They're only enhancing one another and building in all the depths and breadth of God's glorious truth.